Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 77. Nice Girls Still Don't Get the Corner Office. How Women Leaders Can Succeed Today. Featuring Dr. Lois Frankel. inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. It wasn't so long ago that on the game show Jeopardy, host Alex Trebek provided the clue This is the prime piece of business real estate that nice girls don't get. The correct response, of course, was, what is the corner office? You know, within just one year of completing college, women are earning 8% less than the men with whom they graduated. By mid-career, that number increases to more than 20%. And I don't know about you, but I think that just stinks. Now, some women do roar ahead in their careers, but so many more stagnate. So we have to ask, as a leader, how can you be more successful if you're a woman? And regardless of whether you're a male or female, how can you help the women on your team and in your life succeed? Now, I'm so excited to invite on the show today our guest, Dr. Lois Frankel. Ten years ago, she wrote the New York Times bestseller, Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office, Unconscious Mistakes Women Make That Sabotage Their Careers. It's been a huge hit, quoted all over the place, and now, 10 years later, she has completely revised and updated the book and expanded it. The book now has 133 behaviors that women learn in childhood that ultimately sabotage them as adults. She's going to teach you how to eliminate those unconscious mistakes that could be holding you back. And she offers coaching tips that you can incorporate into your social and business skills. Now, one thing I think is fascinating is that this book is actually hugely popular, not just among women, but among men. We're going to talk about why, and we're going to look at several of the 133 mistakes that Dr. Frankel talks about in her book. For example, we're going to look at the mistake of working hard, but you didn't know that was a mistake, and working without a break, needing to be liked and not needing to be liked. We're going to look at crying in the workplace. And we're also going to take a listener question. Uh, Sean asks, do women need to act more like men in order to be successful? Well, Dr. Lois Frankel, thank you for joining us on The Engaging Leader. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be with you. Dr. Frankel, I have to ask you, I'm a guy, not a woman, obviously, and yet I was irresistibly drawn by the book title as well as at least a third of the 133 titles of the mistakes that you go into. And you've become known largely, I think, for women's business books like this one. And yet in, in your book, you mentioned that half of your executive coaching is with men. So I'm curious, why would you say your book has such a draw for men? Well, for men, I think it's because they either see themselves in some of the mistakes. As you said, maybe a third of the mistakes could apply to men and women. Um, but those third don't apply to most men, just some men, because it was really important to me to really focus on mistakes women make, because I didn't want to dilute it. So depending on the man, he may find, you know, like you said, maybe about a third or a little bit less mistakes apply to him as well. Also, men are interested for two other reasons. One is it helps them to coach the women on 
on their teams. It really helps them to understand women and why they act as they do. And for enlightened men who want to help women get the corner office, this helps them to coach them. And then I think the last reason is because they get it for their wives, their daughters, their girlfriends, who they also want to help get the corner office. So um, what I'm finding is that enlightened men are buying the book uh, almost as much as women. When I first started reading Nice Girls Still Don't Get the Corner Office, I thought that the, the key sticking point would be the word nice and that I would felt like I was probably going to have to disagree with you in the end and, and insist that, no, I really think you can be nice and still succeed. But as I went deeper in the book, it really seemed like the key word you were dealing with was the, the word girls. C- can you explain that for us? Yeah, you really picked it up because a lot of times after I do a keynote, women come up to me and say the exact same thing. I never bought your book because I thought you were going to say we had to be mean or be more like, a, more like a man, and that's not the message at all. And you picked up on it's the nice girl that is really the emphasis. And so the whole premise of the book is that if you act like the nice little girl you were taught to be in childhood, you'll never achieve your adult goals. That nice is necessary for success. You have to be nice, but it's not sufficient. That you have to balance the niceness with some other behaviors. And then in the book, I provide you with tools and tips for how to do that. Now, would you say that there's something wrong with the way that we're raising our daughters? Or is it just a... uh, Something an unavoidable situation that happens that that girls are taught to be a certain way and then not don't get beyond that kind of girlhood template. Well, you know, I don't think that it's unavoidable. I don't think most things are unavoidable. Um, <laughs> I think that that what happens is there's there's two kinds of upbringing it seems, and one is where parents are giving girls, little girls, different messages than they're giving little boys, either consciously or otherwise. And so in those homes, girls are still getting the message that you have to be nice, you have to be helpful, you have to be kind, it's better to listen than to talk. And, you know, I just this weekend, I just did a group of college juniors and seniors. And I asked them, what messages are you getting in childhood? And those were the messages that they were getting. So, you know, it's interesting. I got those messages growing up, and now, you know, two generations later, they're still getting those messages. So, you know, I think part of that is just gender bias. But there's also the young women who say, you know, I got the message I could be anything I wanted. So so in some families, the message has changed to you can do anything a boy can do. You can do the sky's the limit for you. You can do anything you want to do. The problem is, even if you get those messages, as soon as you get into society, you get different messages. As one woman yesterday said, you know, it's confusing because my parents told me I could do anything I wanted. And then I get to school and I'm kind of taught in subtle ways that you've got to dumb down a little. Boys won't like you. You look in the media. How do we treat women? You know, television, movies, advertising. And you look at all that and they don't treat men and women equally in those messages. So it's it's really twofold. It's the upbringing, and then it is social messages. Hmm. Now this is the tenth anniversary edition. So it's been, you you first came out ten years ago with "Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office." In this updated version, "Nice Girls Still Don't Get the Corner Office." What has changed in the world since your first edition came out? Not much. That's actually <laughs> why I wrote it. You know, in the book, I say. 
this is the book I wish I never had to write. And people think that's kind of funny to say, but, you know, the fact is, is if we had gotten further in 10 years, I wouldn't have had to, well, I wouldn't have wanted to update it and revise it. I realized that there was a whole new generation of young women, women that are just starting off in the workforce, who didn't hear the nice girls don't get the corner office message, in part because their parents really did think that they took care of all this for them. And one young woman, it was an African-American woman who was working in uh, entertainment in New York. I, I had done a survey about two years ago, and I was asking her, so now that you're in the workforce, what do you think? What are some of your challenges? She said, the biggest challenge is that I knew it was going to be hard because I was an African-American woman. I didn't know it was going to be this hard, and I didn't know all the biases that my mother put up with I would still be putting up with. And so, you know, I really felt it was important to get the message out again. You know, just in a moment of honesty here, you, I'm sure you've heard that one brain teaser where the airplane goes down, and I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to say it right because it's been a while since I heard it, but the, the gist is that the, the airplane crashes and a father and his son go up in the airplane, it crashes, they get taken to the hospital and the, the father dies. The son is is in critical condition. The doctor comes in and says, I cannot operate on this boy. This boy is my son. And so how do you make sense of that? And I had heard that before. And yet, not too long ago, somebody asked me that brain teaser. And I sat there and I thought, you know, I've heard this. <laughs> I've heard this before. I know what the, what it is. And yet I still fell for it. That Obviously, the, the, the doctor was the boy's mother. Right. And there's just such a social conditioning that we uh, sort of automatically, uh, we know better, but it's still our first thought is that the doctor must be male. And so I, I fell for it, even though I should know better. And so I, when I read your introduction in this book and you, you were talking about, okay, what's changed? And you did have to add uh, and update a lot of things in the book as far as social media and so forth. But a lot of those overall biases haven't changed. And I had to say, to say to myself, yeah, you know, I think I'm actually probably part of the problem there. As much as I think I'm enlightened, I probably have a lot of growing up to do. Well, you know, I think we all carry those biases around. You know, I know I certainly do. There's, you know, I said, I did the exact same thing just the other day with someone that, and I don't even recall what it was, but I remember saying, well, he must have really liked that. And she said, no, it was a woman. And I thought, well, there's my bias coming through. But you know what? It, you know, an interesting aside is I, I did. I have heard that brain teaser, but I had a um, boss once who uh, his his doctor was a female, and this was a while ago. This was probably like 25 years ago, and his his physician, his primary care physician, was a female, and she was telling him the story that she introduced her daughter to another physician. And the little girl said, Mommy, he can't be a doctor. Only girls are doctors. <laughs> because she grew up with a mom for a doctor. So, you know, yeah. again, it shows that we need to be providing these messages, these role models, because kids learn what they see. If you mm. can see it, you can be it. And if you don't see someone who looks like you doing what you want to do, it's harder to believe you can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would like to jump into some of the 133 mistakes that you say that women especially tend to make. And then we've got a, a question or two from our community as well. But one of the first chapters that jumped out at me was this mistake that you say is, is working hard. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, 
that's what spurred the book to be written in the first place. I was coaching a woman, a, a vice president of manufacturing, and she was sent to me because she was a little bit on the aggressive side of assertive, and we know what we call those women. <laughs> and, you know, I had been working with her for about three or four months, and then it, before we started a session, she said, before we get going, I just want to tell you, I was invited to sit on the executive committee of my company, and I went to give her a high five, and she stopped me. And I said, what? You're not going to do it? <laughs> you know, you know cause, no, I, I'm not going to sit on this executive committee. I've been to those meetings. They're a waste of time. And what popped out of my mouth was, honey, you got to quit being a girl. Because like many women, she learned you had to work twice as hard to be considered half as good. So if she thought something was a waste of time, she didn't do it because it wasn't working hard. And that's a huge mistake for women, that we really believe we have to work harder than everyone else. And that's just not true. That's a myth. In every workplace, there is a baseline for hard work. And you have to work up to that baseline. You have to work as hard as everyone else in your organization. But when you go over that baseline, what winds up happening is you're doing what we call making miracles. And the more miracles that you make, the more you're asked to make. And so women really need to do a better job of understanding how do I manage expectations so that I can spend some time managing my career and not just keeping my nose to the grindstone because that's not going to get you the corner office. Miracle workers get canonized. They don't get recognized. And they also, it seems like, at some point, fall for the myth that they are indispensable. And uh, then sooner or later, you find they discover that, oh, I guess I was dispensable after all, but they find out the hard way. Well, they do, because they think that if I'm working hard, nobody will work as hard as I will. And, you know, and part of that is true. Nobody probably will work as hard as you will. But that's not what you get paid for. You don't get paid to work hard. You get paid to add value. So if you come to work every single day, you do your job, you do it well, you work hard, and you're not doing other things like, gee, noticing that something should be changed, or there's a better way to do this, or my boss is going in the wrong direction, and and I really have a responsibility to say something about this. I need to be building relationships with people to make it easier to do my job. If you're not doing those things, then you are really not securing your employment long term. Yeah, I love this sentence or two in the book. You say, and herein lies one of business's best kept secrets. People aren't hired and promoted simply because they work hard. It happens because the decision maker knows the character of the person and feels confident about his or her ability not only to do the job, but also to do it in a way that promotes collegial team relationships. So in the context there, you're talking about it's more than just keeping your nose to the grindstone, but some of that sort of networking that goes on in the office that may seem like a waste of time chatting over the Super Bowl or something like that is actually allowing each other to get to know your character. Exactly. And and we want to, you know, we spend a lot of time at work, and we want to be around people that we like, that we know, that we can trust. If people don't know you, they can't trust you. And so you have to, you know, do what I call a little bit of opening the kimono. You have to let people see who you are. And you have to take time to see who other people are. You know, I think it was Dale Carnegie who said, you'll make more friends by asking people questions than by talking to them about yourself. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you really do need to engage in relationship building because when you need a relationship, it's already too late to build it. Now, there's another mistake here, mistake number nine, that I think is related, and it's working without a break. And you say that 
Women in general will work nonstop to crank out a project, but that can actually sabotage their long-term success. Well, it really does because, you know, then that gets back again to making the miracles. And the more miracles you make, the more you're asked to make. When you ask, you know, a man to do something that is practically impossible, okay, that there's not enough time, there's not enough resources, there's not enough money to get it done. You know, if I have a group of men and women that I'm speaking with, I'll pick out a man in the audience and I'll say, what do you do when your boss asks you to make a miracle? And he says one of three things. I laugh. I negotiate to do something more reasonable. Or number three, I delegate it to a woman because I know she'll get it done. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. And you ask a woman the exact same question, a group of women, and they say, well, you know, we roll up our sleeves, we get it done. And... And again, that's what's causing women in many cases to not have that work-life balance that they so much want. You know, when you think about one of the major complaints women have in the workplace is that, you know, they're working all day at work, they're going home, they're doing, you know, anywhere between 30 and 45% more work than men are doing at home. They have no balance. Well, part of it is because they work without a break, they're working too hard, they're making miracles, and they need to learn to negotiate. Yeah, and and I suppose in terms of overall value that uh, a lot of people would actually add greater value if they did take breaks because there's so many productivity boosts that come along when you when you take breaks. Oh yeah, you know, all the research shows that you know, working without a break, you reach a point of diminishing returns pretty quickly. So just refreshing yourself, even if it's even if it's just getting up from your desk, going to the cubicle next to yours and saying hey, you know, Jesse, I know that you're a gourmet chef and my mother-in-law is coming for dinner and do you have any recipes you might be able to bring me tomorrow that I could make and kind of impress her? You know, that that took me less than a minute to say. would take less than probably two or three minutes of our time and we both get a break. And you know that I know you or you know I know what's important to you and that I respect you. So right there, you've kind of, you know, hit you hit on a couple of ways to help secure your career. Now here's a a pair of mistakes that I it was it was fun to even see them right back to back in the book and I it was need one was needing to be liked and then not needing to be liked how can they both be mistakes <laughs> Yeah okay the needing to be liked you know women have this disease to please that if people don't you know the worst thing in the world is that people might not like us or they might call us names You know, I call that the Sally Fields phenomenon, right? (laughs) You like me. You really like me. Well, there was a reason why Sally Fields played all of those kind of nice girl parts from Gidget to the Flying Nun to Smokey and the Bandit sidekick. Um, That's because she was the quintessential nice girl. And then when she won the Academy Award for Places in the Heart, it really underscored it when she made that comment, you like me, you really like me. Um, Again, it's important to be nice and it's important to be likable. A high likability quotient is critical for success for both men and women. Take a look at Bill Clinton. Now, Bill Clinton has a a huge likability quotient. It's probably higher than Hillary's. And that's, you know, and that's just a good contrast for women to see. So it's important to be likable, but if you take it to the extreme, then you're not making the tough calls then you're not saying things that need to be said. Then you're not advocating for yourself. So that's on, the ni- that's on being the too nice. On the other end is not needing to be liked. Because, you know, I've coached women who have said, you know, I'm not here to win a popularity contest. I'm here to get my job done. 
And to that I always say, yes, you are here to win a popularity contest because you can't get your job done if people don't like you. So there's this place in the middle. You know, on the continuum, I usually put it from Martha Stewart to Sally Field. You know, on one end of the continuum, you have someone, you know, she can act a bit imperious at times, Martha Stewart. And then on the other end of the continuum, you have Sally Field. And really, there's a place in the middle because both women offer us something that we probably need to adopt and and um, have as part of our repertoire. You know, Martha Stewart is driven. She's direct. She's straightforward. I think more women could do with some of that while not giving up this whole thing about listening to others, caring what others have to say and being concerned for others. Yeah, I like that. Now, this might be a good time to ask a question that came in because it relates directly to one, another mistake that caught my eye. Sean asks, do women need to act more like men in order to be successful? And the answer to that is an unequivocal no. Women can't act like men and get away with it. When women act like men, that's when they get called a bitch. Right? I mean, I hope mm-hmm. I can say that on the air. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's when they get called names, is when they act like men. Because we live in a society where we don't like women who act like men any more than we like men who act like women. You know, if, if uh, I'm just trying to think of, um, you know, if Bill Gates were to cry at an earnings call, you know, that would have been the kiss of death for Bill Gates because we don't like men who act like women. And similarly, when women try to act like men, it just doesn't work. Women can't get away with the same things men can. A man, you know, can just tell you direct and straightforward how he feels, and we kind of accept it. A woman has to tell people to go to hell so they look forward to the trip. (laughs) So the... I guess you're in the chapter about the, where the mistake is acting like a man, your emphasis, you're saying the mistake is acting, that it's more about being yourself and discovering your own style and your own voice. Yeah, it's about being yourself. And, you know, I wouldn't want to take away anyone's femininity, but it's about also adding new behaviors that may be uncomfortable to you. So, you know, for example, if you have a hard time having a difficult conversation with someone, you know, let's just say you need to tell someone you didn't appreciate what they did to you in a meeting. Well, you know, a woman will often go off and lick her wounds, and then eventually she starts crying. And then she wonders why she's crying. Well, it's because of all of the anger and the resentment that's built up. I mean, that's what it's about. My very first book was called Women, Anger, and Depression, Strategies for Empowerment. And, you know, it's based on the theory that Women, because we're not allowed to express our anger, we turn it inwards and we get depressed. So for women, what they need to learn to do is, you know, and I said it kind of flippantly, but it's very true about learning to tell people to go to hell so they look forward to the trip. So there's a model in the book. It's called the death script. And it's about how do you have a difficult conversation? How do, how can I say to you, um, you know, Jesse, I want to talk to you about what happened in that meeting we were in the other day. Every time I went to speak, I was interrupted by you. And I don't know if you noticed that. And then, and then have, letting you answer. You know, just letting you say, no, no, I didn't do that, or, you know, or I didn't realize it. Whatever you might say, it doesn't really matter what you say back, because what I'm saying is what's most important in this case. So even if you were to say, you know, you know I didn't notice that. I can say, oh, you know, okay, well, you know, I'm glad that I brought it up then. What would be really helpful to me, Jesse, is if when I say something, you add on to it and build on it, but 
but that I not be interrupted because otherwise I feel like what I have to say isn't really important to you. Now, see, there there's a, a great way to just tell you how I see it without necessarily demolishing you or minimizing my experience. I liked the way you handled that too because you said I was interrupted or I felt like I was interrupted by you and it really kept it with with sort of it was uh, you were taking responsibility for and you weren't saying you did this you did that you were speaking an i message there which sort of naturally comes across uh, it it tends to not put the other person on the the defensive exactly and that's why you use i messages because first of all you can't argue with my experience it was my experience and second of all it doesn't put you on the defensive Twice now you've mentioned crying, so I, which, which was one of the chapters that leaped out at me, that this is a mistake that many women can make that sabotage their success, crying. And I have to ask, so, but you also said that women aren't allowed to express themselves. So what's, what's the issue there? Why is it, shouldn't women cry? And, and why, I mean, is it, or should the, the system be changed so that it's okay to express your emotions? Well, you know, the system were to be changed to express your emotions, I wish it would be changed for men as well. Because it's not just women who aren't allowed to express their emotions in this way. Men aren't either, quite frankly. Now, the reason why I don't think women, um, people don't like it when women cry, is because it makes them uncomfortable. They don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do when someone starts to, you know, especially guys think, what am I supposed to do when someone starts to cry in front of me? And so... It makes it seem as if you can't handle pressure, you know, you, that you really don't know how to respond in difficult situations, and then your upward mobility is going to be limited. It's, but, but I also say in the book that women are wired to cry. You know, asking a woman not to cry is a little bit like asking, you know, trying to teach a pig you know, to sing. It annoys you and it frustrates the pig. So I don't <laughs> tell women not to cry. What I say is, if you find yourself getting tearful in the workplace, what you need to do is, number one, excuse yourself. You need to simply excuse yourself. You need to say, you know what, you can see I'm getting emotional about this. Let me go collect myself. I'll come back. Mm. Number two, while you're collecting yourself, you need, to say, you need to ask, what am I really mad about? Because if you can put words to the feelings, then you can go back and talk about it. And it's almost always that you're angry about something and you turned it into tears. So being able to go back and say, I realize that what, I, what was going on was I was kind of angry because every time we have this discussion, I feel as if I'm overlooked, that my ideas are simply uh, minimized. So being able to come back and say something like that is important. And then the third thing is asking yourself who the person you're communicating with reminds you of. Because many times, women start to cry if someone acts like another man from their past. It could be an ex-husband, it could be a father, it could be a grandfather, it could be a brother who teased you mercilessly. Um, I've seen it happen to all kinds of different people. But if you can figure out who it is, then you can say, you know what, that's not my father. That is my co- colleague, or that is my boss. And I'm going to interact with them human to human, adult to adult. Now, let's turn that around. What advice would you give to someone, a man or woman, who is talking to somebody in a meeting or one-on-one and that other person that starts to cry? So, for example, I've had people I've worked with uh, 
and I, maybe I was delivering a performance appraisal that had some negative aspects. And the woman I was uh, counsel- coaching with there started to to cry on me. Or it might happen with my wife, as an example. How, how should I respond in those situations? Well, you know, there's two things that you can do. Number one, you can just be silent. Because one of the things that frustrates women about men is that you think you've got to fix the problem. Right? Mm-hmm. And how, I don't know how many times your wife has said to you, you know what, I don't want you to fix the problem, I just want you to listen. Oh, never, never. Never, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so one of the things is that you can just be silent and let, the, and let the person collect themselves, not feel as if you have to do anything. And the second thing that you can do is you can say, can you put words to the tears? I mean, just that simple, can you put words to the tears? I'd like to understand how you're feeling. And then that brings the person back to a more cognitive place rather than an emotional place. Now, another is, uh, I was thinking about one of the your suggestions to women if they start to tear up, and, and your first was that excuse yourself so that you can go, you can go get collected. What, are, is there some kind of verbal cue that you can give to someone who's starting to tear up that, hey, do you need to go collect yourself? Can you, is there a way to say that without sounding like you're speaking down to them? Well, you know, I think the first, you know, and there's usually people who this tends to happen to. You know, it's like it doesn't happen with all women. And it's like the first time that you see it happen, I don't know that there's a cue that you can give them because you're going to be surprised. And if it's the first time you've seen it, you don't want to surprise her. But afterwards, I think that's a coaching opportunity. That's an opportunity to say, you know what, when you get kind of, you know, worked up like that, the best thing to do is just yourself. And then just, you know, just give her the exact same tips that I just gave you. But I don't know that there's a cue you can, like, you know, kind of like, you know, putting your um, forefinger across your throat, cut it. You know, I don't, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Well, here's another mistake that jumped out at me, and it was TMI, too much information. And how is how do women make that mistake that might be different than men? Yeah, you know, uh, women tend to use more words than men, first of all. By some estimates, women use about 20,000 words a day, and men use somewhere around 8,000. So right there, women are using more words. Many times they use the more words because they're softening the message. They want to soften the message. They don't want to come across as too strong, too direct, too independent. And so they are subconsciously or consciously softening their messages. And then in that process, they're giving way too much information, and it can be personal information, it could be business information. It could be, you know, I'm having a discussion with you about, oh, a new direction I'd like our department to take, and I'm just giving you way too much information, and you are, like, you know, just zoning out over it. And so women need to understand that short sounds confident that we need to cut our messages by about 25%, that we need to speak in headlines. Uh, you know, Jesse, I just want to let you know that I'm going to be working on the ABC account, and I'm going to do it a little differently this time. I am going to interview everybody first, going to collect the data, and then I'm going to get back to them. And I just wanted to let you know. Now, there's direct, straightforward. I didn't ask you permission to do it. I just told you what I was going to do and that I would let you know how it turns out. And that's it. But too many women would start a conversation like that with, you know, Jesse, there's something that I want to talk to you about, and I've been thinking about it, and I think we could probably do a better job with the ABC account. And you know what? The more I talk, the more you don't listen. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we have really only scratched the surface. There's 133 mistakes in the book with that you explain and provide very practical tips toward, and we've only talked about a few of them. Dr. Frankel, how can people find out more about you and about this book and about your work? I have a website, drloisfrankel.com. I tweet tips every day on Twitter, and that's at Dr. Lois Frankel. And you can find my books if you just uh, go into Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. You'll find all my books there. Dr. Lois Frankel, the author of the new book, Nice Girls Still Don't Get the Corner Office. Thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Jesse, thank you so much for having me. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. Again, the book is Nice Girls Still Don't Get the Corner Office, Unconscious Mistakes Women Make That Sabotage Their Careers. And I think both men and women are going to love this new edition of the book. It's broken into 133 sections. They're all very enjoyable and bite-sized nuggets filled with stories and good practical tips that you can put into practice. I found it helpful. I think you all will love it too. We will also, uh, on our show notes for this episode, we'll put all those links that Dr. Lois shared with us. You can find the show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash 77 as in episode 77. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at aspendalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Terrence, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about.